This message by Sam Shin, entitled "The Book of Life," was recorded at Wellspring Church on March 31, 2019. The text for this message is Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 18. This morning's scripture reading comes、uh, from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8.、So、we will be reading the entire chapter, verses 1 through 18, together. Hear now the word of the Lord. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early in the morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, "Amen, Amen," lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah. Maaseh, Kalita, Azariah, Josbad, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, "This day is holy to the Lord your God." Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, "Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength." So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, "Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved." And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded Moses. That the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate. And in the square at the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths, for from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun 
to the day that the people of Israel, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. On the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As Chad shared earlier, uh, next week is our 20th anniversary. And it's really amazing how time has moved so quickly through these years. It uh, truly, life is a vanishing mist, and uh, we recognize that. Um, next week, I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break from Nehemiah. We'll be speaking, I'll be speaking from the book of Acts as a whole. And the idea of it is, what it has been like for 20 years together. And I'd like to explain that from Acts, because I think Acts is so much about the church and the advance of the church. But if I were to try to pick one topic that would lead into that, it would be this. And this is always God's goodness. It is the idea of the foundation of Scripture being everything upon which we base all of our faith and trust in Christ. And if you know anything about systematic theologies, the, the beginning chapter of pretty much every good systematic theology starts with Scripture. Because if you don't actually believe the Word of God, then everything after every theological question becomes meaningless because where do we get that information from? Where do we get our ideas about who Jesus is, who God is, what the church is about? We get it from the Bible. And so unless we understand that the Bible is the center focus upon all that we believe as a Christian, we won't have any faith at all. And I don't know if you know this, but when we go through books like Nehemiah, we try to read the whole chapter together. We didn't last week. You know, it was two chapters long. And I don't know if you took a look at chapter 7 when I spoke on it last week. But chapter 7 is a bunch of names, and we could have done that. We could have all stood there and read every name. And as you saw, Chad did such a great job of reading all those names. But chapter 7 is all about those names. And I often wonder if we think, well, I'm going to skip those boring parts and get to the really exciting parts of the Bible. But there is a, a, a solemnity, a purpose of understanding that God has a purpose for everything in the Bible. And in this chapter, Nehemiah chapter 8, he doesn't just pick and choose the exciting parts. He describes everything. And it's so important for us to realize that to read the Bible this way, to understand it, is so integral to our lives and to our life of faith. And so I'm going to focus on this idea of the book of life that Nehemiah presents to us and how it's so significant, not just eternally, which it is, but as well for us today and how it actually allows us to experience everything that we can as a believer of Christ. I'm going to focus on three verbs that I think sort of represent this text. The first is read, in verses 1 through 8. The second is repent, in verse 9. And then the third is rejoice, in verses 10 through 18. So very easy to remember, read, repent, and rejoice. <clears throat> Let's first look at the first verb, read. The walls are finally built, and so one of the first things that Nehemiah and Ezra, the priest, they do is they gather all the people together. They assemble them 
and they read the law, the Torah, probably the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, and they read it word for word. And if you've ever tried this idea of, I'm going to read the Bible this year, maybe you had a New Year's resolution from beginning to end, you start in Genesis. Genesis swings by, it's pretty easy. Exodus, it's really exciting up to Moses, but then he starts describing the law and then the temple, and he repeats the temple, and then you get to Leviticus. Slowly plod your way through Leviticus, it has all the different offerings, the different types, the grain offering, and this first fruit offering and sacrificial offering. And then you get to numbers, all the names and all the numbers. And usually that's when people say, I think I'm going to skip to the New Testament. But imagine we are gathering together and you're standing. We're outside and we are reading the book of the law from Genesis to Deuteronomy. You know, it takes about six hours to do that non-stop. So you're standing six hours and someone, it's, it's probably these 13 men with Ezra on the platform and they're reading these words. And you might think to yourself, and I'm sure some of the kids, because there were children there, there were teenagers, there were babies, older men and women, seniors, everyone was there, right? And they're in the middle of this wall that was just completed. And you might think, Boy, five to six hours of reading, reading out loud, you would just start thinking about your laundry. Think about what you're going to eat. Oh, I'm so hungry. Lunch. When is lunch? Oh, these babies are so loud. It's easy to think that way because we have a hard time reading the Bible, even just one chapter, maybe a day, one verse. But we find that for these people, as they read this book, this law, it was not a burden to them. Look at verse three. And the ears of the, uh, of the ears of all the people were attentive, attentive to the book of the law. Is it possible that in the end, the Bible, perhaps the reason why we struggle so hard with reading the Bible is that we actually don't really desire to read the Bible. It's not that it's boring. It's that it's our hearts that says, I have better things to do. Um, we find perhaps the Bible dull. But what is the key difference between these attentive listeners in Nehemiah 8 and us? For these people, they had just basically given their whole life thus far, the past few months, almost to a year of rebuilding and of striving to do all that they could. But this was not how the people of Israel always were. You know what? They were actually very similar to, this, to us. They struggled with the same struggles that we did. It's actually why Jerusalem was destroyed in the first place. Before Jerusalem's destruction, they were the people of God. They went to the temple. They did their sacrifices. But they were also pretty prosperous. And as they prospered, it became so easy to go along with whatever was the fad of the day, whatever was most popular, which was most prosperous, they would do. It wasn't that they neglected the law completely and did nothing apart from God. It's that they follow God and they live their lives and ultimately live their lives 
far above with more priority than following God. And so the law became something that they heard every once in a while. It became something that wasn't so significant to them. And it became on the, the shelf, you might say. And they didn't have a written Bible in the way that we did. They had scrolls that were read at the, the temple. But they, did, they had to go places to actually read. Some, unlike us, where we have the Bible on a shelf in our hand. One thing we know is that our reading of Scripture is not proportionate to access. You know, today we have more access to the Bible than any other culture ever. How do I know that? Because all you need to do is take out your phone and you have a Bible. And everyone, I think, in this room, most everyone has a phone in their pocket or in their purse. So clearly, it's not, well, I don't actually have access to a Bible. You could say some places around the world, they can make that argument. But we certainly cannot. We have more access to our Bible than I know when I was a kid, where the Bible was something you had to carry with you. And you had to specifically, intentionally grab it from your bookshelf or your desk and take it with you and carry it. That's not the case today. So ironically, the more access we have to Scripture, to the Bible, to God's Word, the less today than ever before are people actually biblically literate. What does that say about our understanding of why we either read or do not read the Bible? It is definitely not about convenience. In fact, not at all. It's totally about our desire, our heart. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we will say ultimately, honestly, I do not want to read the Bible. I know that if I were to pose the question to each of us, wouldn't your tendency to be to think your first response might be, oh, I'm so busy. Why, my work starts so early. Or I have young children. That's our natural tendency is we don't want to actually say what's real in our hearts. Because what's real in our heart is it's not that important to me. It, it's not significant. It doesn't make a difference in my life. I love iced drinks. I do. And like probably many of you, we have one of those refrigerators where you stick your cup under that spout and the ice pours out. But right now we have this problem is that as I stick my cup under, it just, you hear the grinding and the, the motor going and yet no ice comes out or little pieces. And it just seems as though there's some sort of mechanism that's causing all the ice to sort of bottleneck at this one place. We have to constantly like sort of move it around and then get it flowing again. And I, as I uh, think about that, I often think that that's in some way what our hearts are like when it comes to reading the Bible, actually. You're probably thinking, who thinks about ice and reading the Bible like that? Well, I do. I try to think about those things. And I sort of see it as the cluttering of our hearts. There's just so much distraction in our lives, more than ever before. The question is, why do we not want to read God's Word? And the answer is that there are too many other priorities other ideas, other thoughts. And I don't think there's a person in this room that is immune from this idea that as the, all these different ideas and thoughts and things we read on our phones and the news, sports, 
purchasing things, looking at social media, texting friends. It just starts cluttering and clumping, and our hearts become so stuck that, in fact, if Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 describes it this way, calls it a hardness in the heart. And we ta- often think that hardness in the heart is referring to that person who doesn't, refuses to believe in the Bible, rejects God as an atheist, and they're hard of heart. And they are. Maybe there are some in this room who are as well. But I don't think Paul is referring just to that person. He's also referring to people like us who are so cluttered with thoughts that we have automatically assumed that, well, the Bible is not so significant. God's word is, doesn't really make an impact, a difference in our lives. Jesus describes in John 8.37 when he tells the Jewish leaders and he says to them, you seek to kill me, listen to this last part, because my words find no place in you. When we do not have room for God and his word in our hearts, then it is possible to have the desire to seek to kill the Savior. And in every way, even figuratively and metaphorically, we do. Every time we turn away from God and reject him, we crucify him. We, we are the reason upon which why he had to die on a cross. Because in our hearts, instead of having God's word hidden in our heart, as Psalm 119 tells us, we have some sort of sale going on in our hearts. We have, we're trying to research how to parent better. And again, a lot of these things, the things that I'm listing, they're not evil things. They're not bad things. How to work better at your workplace. How to have better leadership skills. All good things. But when that is everything to your life, and God's word is, well, I don't have time. I'm too busy. I'm too tired. Those are all faints. They're red herrings. They're those things that we want to some way mitigate or lessen the guilty feeling we have by making it actually sound like we're actually better than we are because we don't want to say what's really going on. God, I, I don't really trust you. This Bible that I know you tell me and I, I say it so often, I sing about it, that it's your word. I believe it. When I hide it in your heart, I will not sin against you. I will trust you through it. I actually really don't believe that it's true. It's a hard thing to hear. But if you don't get that, you won't understand why Israel is in this place in the first place. Why actually as they're standing suddenly and hearing and reading and hearing the words being read to them, words that for us, maybe as Chad is reading Nehemiah 8, are you really contemplating Is it striking you? Is it making you humbled of heart? If the answer is, no, not really, then maybe, just maybe, we're in that same place that Israel once was before the destruction of Jerusalem. Because slowly but surely, they faded away from God. You know, it wasn't just one day they woke up and said, I refuse to believe in God. That's not how it works. It always works by your connectedness to God's word. And when you fade away from that, and Sundays are important, and as we'll see next, preaching is important. 
But your personal time with God is critical. And unless that is a part of your life, you should not be surprised when you feel dry. When God is not a part of your life at all and it becomes more of a a program to your life. If we look at verse 4, Ezra is on a wooden platform. You know, if you've ever gone to an old cathedral or a classic church, if you go to New England especially, you'll see in the old Puritan churches, you'll see the pulpit is really high and it's wood. Well, that idea comes from this text. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 4, because what happened is that Ezra... There's so many people, he had to be heard and he had to be seen. And so they create this platform, a pulpit, you might say. And from there, he has 13 men on his right and left. And they are reading the Bible. And, you know, it's it's a challenge to sing and lead and also read. You hear my voice. It's a little bit scratchier than it was when I first came here. Well, after six hours of reading, it's very difficult. So they probably had different men take turns to read Scripture And in verse 7 through 8, there's something else that's really important as well. We see it when he says this. I'm going to skip all the names first. Well, actually, we'll start with also Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, Help the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. You know, one day, our hope is actually, I just want to take a quick aside to say this, is that we, as we prepare to move into this new building, we'll have to move to two worship services. We will have to because of just the size of the place and the amount of people that we have. But one of the things that we really want to do in the context of worship is to have anyone who's interested in being scripture readers. Instead of always Chad reading, we'll have different people. But the different people have to take the reading of scripture very seriously. In other words, if you're reading those names, it can't be also uh, Jeshua. If we do that, We lose sight. We see what happened here. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. There is something to the public reading of God's word that has power. We believe it to be true. But just as much as whether a preacher prepares, you wouldn't want me to come up and just simply ad hoc my sermons every week. You'd be really suffering. Or if the band came up, never practiced, didn't do anything, and just started playing, you'd really be suffering. You don't want that from a scripture reader as well. They need to practice. They need to be clear because it's God's word, because it's so important, and because we believe that simply even the hearing and listening and reading of God's word has significant power by his spirit. But there is another factor in this that is important. It says, what did they do when they read? They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, there are a couple of things that are going on that I do think are significant for us in why we preach, teach, and do what we do every Sunday from a text like this. Notice that, again, it's from Genesis 
to Deuteronomy. In other words, it's consecutive. It is, um, there's a person trained people, 13 men, who are actually, as Ezra's reading, they're, they're, they might be even scattered amongst the people, and they are expositing, they're explaining, and making clear what is being read. So it isn't just good enough for us to simply read the Bible and say, all right, we're done. It is important for someone who is trained to be able to stand here and say, here's what this text is saying. You have the responsibility to determine, does that make sense in light of what I know of what the Bible says to be true? So there is a, an active response going on, and it's consecutive. It's one of the reasons why we preach what's called expositorily or expositionally. Because every Sunday I could come up here and say, today we're going to give 10 steps to parenting. We'll have a parenting series. And don't get me wrong, I don't think there's something inherently wrong with doing a series on parenting or doing a series on dating or doing a series on, on um, work. But that can't be the normative way upon which you learn. And here's the reason why is because I can't tell you how many times in preaching a text through from beginning to end where I'll get to a passage and I'll say, Lord, I don't know how to preach this text. It is so hard. In fact, it just seems irrelevant. How, does it, how do I make it applicable to, to everyone? Because I have a responsibility. Every person who comes here has a responsibility. Their responsibility is not just to go and give you a commentary. You could buy a book that does that. But what I have the responsibility to do is, here's what God's word says from the original authors. Here's what Nehemiah is saying as we look at the words, as we look at grammar structure, as we look at context. But I can't just do that. I have to also say, here's what difference it makes in your life. Here's how it impacts our souls and most of all, here's how it points me to Christ. If I or the person up here does not do that, then I would say we really falter and fail in giving you what God would have us give you. But one thing we know is that when there's consecutive expositional preaching and teaching, it takes out the variable of me determining, okay, if I'm going to give a series on parenting, I'm going to preach... Uh, on one sermon, I'll give you 10 verses and I'll pick and choose all of them. And you can do that, but it'll take a lot of skill, a lot more time, and it takes a lot more work on your end because you need to make sure that those verses that I pull out aren't just ripped out of context. Expositionally, what it does, it shows you the whole picture. I mean, any good story has a big narrative at the end. The Lord of the Rings trilogy. If I were to just talk about Samwise Gamgee and his life, and that's it. You would say, I don't know what that means. Or whatever story you want. You want One little part does not help us to understand the whole. We need both. And so that's why the consecutive teaching of the story is so important to our lives. As well, amazingly, there's revival happening here. People are impacted. And they aren't walking away saying, wow, that makes no difference to me in my life. When they heard this, they were attentive. It dramatically made a difference to their lives. So I do want to ask you a few things. Is God's word dull and dry for you? 
if it is, if there's no sense of wonder at all, I'm not saying every single day when you read the Bible, you're crying or you're on your knees, but there should be a sense of at the end of it, because there are many times when it comes to the Lord, because the last thing Satan wants us to do is come to the Lord. But when we do come to the Lord, there should be a desire at the end of it to say, thank you, Lord. I didn't even feel wanting to do this. But as I read it, I see what difference it makes, how I see you, how I glorify your name. There is a place for all of us here then. It's also, I hope, a desire for you to grow in God's word, to be trained in it, to actually love it. You know, when we have opportunities to learn, that you wouldn't just sit back passively and say, oh, what, that was nice. But in fact, you recognize that your, your ice machine is stuck. And there are all these different, different distractions that are just cluttering your heart. And today, you need to unstuck that heart. You need to go before the Lord and trust in Him. One other thing is that many of you, a number of you have children. And you bring your children, you drop them off at gospel training. And your hope is that, I hope my kids actually find God's Word delightful. So you're hoping that those teachers, and many of them are you, so you're... A lot of, I'm so thankful for so many of you volunteer. But since so many of you do volunteer, you understand this. How many of you think that in that hour on Sunday, you make a lasting difference in their understanding of God's Word? It is an impact. Don't get me wrong, it is. But I will say this, is that your one hour will never match the parents and their impact on that child. And so if you as a parent have no desire for God, God's word, if it's dull and dry, you cannot expect to drop them off on Sundays, hope that someone else transfers their, their love for God's word on your child. It just doesn't work that way. You are your children's greatest model. And if your heart is hard towards God, you should not be surprised if their hearts are hard towards God. If you find that your children are more interested in playing Fortnite and caring more about something other than God, I'm sorry to say, but we all need to look in the mirror first and ask, are they reflecting me? It's a hard question. It's a humbling question. But it is the most important question we need to ask ourselves as parents. And until we ourselves... J.C. Ryle says, kids need to do three things. Read the Bible reverently, read it regularly, and read it at all. Parents need to read the Bible reverently, read it regularly, and read it at all. I'm going to add, you need to also read the Bible enthusiastically. And if we don't do that for ourselves, certainly we should not expect our kids to do that. Oh, and by the way, bribing them to write the Bible down with $100, that doesn't make them love the Bible. It really doesn't. It makes them want to think that writing... I, I know some of your parents have done that and thought, oh, that's a really good idea. That's not a good idea. See, the love of God's Word does not start 
ultimately unless I have it myself. And that's where we begin. So reading, read, read, read. Do not give up the habit of reading. I know so many of us think I'm not a reader. Here's the question. Why did God give us the Bible in written form? Couldn't it have been a nice video? But you know what happens with nice videos? They're not so nice. They're really bad. Try watching most Christian movies. You watch a Christian movie about Jesus and you think, oh, this is terrible. Praise God, the Bible is written rather than an image. Because if it was an image, we'd be looking, oh, that's the guy who played Jesus and he looks exactly Jim Caviezel. You know, that's who we think. Now we have that image of Jesus looks exactly like Jim Caviezel. I mean, that's the problem with images. It's written because it expands our imagination. It gives us, it exceeds the way that we could ever imagine God to truly be because he's unimaginable. And also reading forces us to depend on him. It's not instantaneous. It requires waiting. Working, trusting, developing, understanding. And that's what we need. We need to depend on him. Anything else, we would just be in control like we always are. Secondly is that there's a repentance that goes on in verse 9. As a result of this reading, we see it. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why did he say that? For, because all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why were they weeping? As they heard about God creating the heavens and the earth, the garden, they heard about Cain and Abel, Cain being murdered by his brother, Lamech, this unruly, rebellious man who believed that he could control all the world through cities, gets all the way to Abraham. God just, by his own sovereignty, takes Abraham, pulls him out of Ur, and says, I want you to go to this land. And Abraham just follows. His son Isaac, Jacob. We know the story of Joseph in chapter 50 of Genesis. He's put into, he's made the prime minister of Egypt. And initially, that wasn't his story. He was thrown and betrayed by his own brothers, left for dead. And then when he's, those brothers are caught in their trap, in their web, Joseph says, don't worry, I'm not going to harm you. And as he's about to, all the brothers are about to leave, because they all the brothers now leave Israel and come into Egypt, a place where you shouldn't go when you trust in God, and yet God says, don't worry, this is my will, this is my plan. And they're all brought in. And Joseph at the very end says, you know what? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. But when God brings you out, make sure you take my bones with you. And then we go into Exodus. Because now this new king in Egypt didn't know, didn't know who Joseph was. And so instead he sees Israel just populating like little rabbits, multiplying. And then he says, you know what? These guys, they're getting too big we got to enslave them or else they're going to take over our nation. And so he enslaves them. Over 400 years he enslaves them and they cry out, God, have mercy on us. And so what does God do? He says, I'm going to call this guy. He's an Egyptian, but he's also really a Jew. He gets caught. 
And he goes and instead he's caught killing an Egyptian. Runs into the desert, comes back after 40 years, takes the people, says 10 plagues, delivers them from Pharaoh, and then goes and takes them all into this journey in the desert. Over 600,000 people, perhaps, with animals following along. And they're going in this desert in circles. And they're constantly complaining. They are upset. They're saying, Moses, you've brought us out here to die. And God says, Moses, I'm going to kill them. I'm just going to wipe them out. I'm tired of this. I, I, they are rebellious against me. Moses said, then, then take me too. Please do not, for your name's sake, do not destroy them. And he doesn't. He doesn't destroy them. He keeps covenant with them. He keeps on going. God keeps on being faithful. Moses, they finally enter into the promised land. Moses doesn't go because he's guilty of disobeying God himself. Instead, Joshua brings him in to this land of Canaan. And there are giants in the land. They're so big. They're so great. And yet, they go in. And they're able to overtake the giants in the land. God gives them this land. And he, they become fruitful, multiply. And then God says, brings up judges. And ju these judges come, but they're so messed up, as we all know. And then finally they say, we want a king, just like everybody else. All these, other, all these other nations have kings. Why can't we have a king? And Samuel, the last judge, he's so upset. He's saying, how dare you do this? And God says, don't worry, I'll give them a king. But tell them that when this king comes, that they're, they're going to lead you astray, ultimately. So what does God do? He gives them what they want. He gives them Saul. Saul doesn't work out so well. He gives them David. David's awesome. But after David, he commits adultery. He kills Uriah. And God says, because you have shed blood and you've turned against me, there will always be a sword in your house. But God is gracious. He doesn't wipe out the line of David. God has Solomon. The very child that was born under Bathsheba. The woman that David had adultery with. And yet God used that man and his line and so every king of Israel and Judah and the kingdom splits into two parts. And every king is now going into a new di direction. Eventually, they turn away from the Lord. In 586 BC, the first the, Is the northern kingdom turns away in 722. Assyria comes in, destroys them. The southern kingdom is left Judah. In 586 BC, the Babylonians come in and destroy them. And now the people are in captivity. So I just gave you the Old Testament in about two minutes, three minutes. But they heard the first five books. And, you know, this was their story. They just forgot about it. They, they just neglected it because for so many years, they said, ah, you know what, we're prosperous. Everything's going well. We don't really need God. We can sort of just, as long as we do our duty, everything will be okay. But when these people heard this story, they started saying, they started looking inward and saying, that's me. It's not just my forefathers. I have that heart too. I turn away from God. I reject him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the, uh, to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
If you have ever been on the other side of this double-edged sword of God's word, when you hear it and you feel the pain and you are convicted of your own sin and you realize how much you've turned away from God, how much you've forgotten him, how much you have neglected him. Every morning he comes out to you and say, will you open your hands to me? Will you come and visit me today? I want to be with you. And still we say, oh, maybe tomorrow. And you know how that goes. Maybe tomorrow becomes the next day and the next day and the next day. In the end, it's me saying, I can do this just like a little child all by myself. They're trying to tie their shoelace. I could do this. You try to help them because they're spending two, I don't know, ten minutes on it. I could do this all by myself. What you really want is people say, I need your help. I need you, Lord. This is what repentance is. It's the recognition that we cannot do this. When you are in this place, Acts 2 describes when Peter preached the gospel and then when the people heard it for the first time, in verse, chapter 2, verse 37, it says they were cut to the heart. Oh, I hope that's what happens for you. When you hear God's word, when you read it, do not just simply read it and say, I did my duty. I love how D.A. Carson describes it. He says, when you come to the Lord reading God's word, do not stop reflecting, praying until it actually matters to you. If you just read it and say, okay, I'm done. Now let me go do what I need to do. Then you haven't understood what it means to come before him and just to be ready. Sometimes it takes a little while. But let yourself be cut to the heart. It is so good. He is so good. And so what happened is that these people were weeping. They were weeping over this. They were weeping so much that Nehemiah had to say, stop weeping. Stop. Because according to verses 10 through 18, there's something more. There's better. It is good to mourn over your own sin, but it is better to rejoice over what God has done for you. Repentance is not the end goal. Please do not forget this. God is not there to try to kick you so that you'll feel bad about yourself. That's not what Christianity is. But it is to acknowledge our turning away, to turn away from that, but then to see that on the turning away, there's actually joy in the other direction. It's not turn away from sin because, well, you can now have a lot more labor and sacrifice and be miserable for the rest of your life. But it's Christianity at least. No, that's not it. It's turn away because if you really want lasting joy, that's what's there for you. And that's what we see in verses 10 through 18. In verses 10 through 12, it says, go your own, go your way, eat the fat. And fat is the best portion of the meat and drink sweet wine. That shows you wine is not bad in and of itself. It's not unholy to drink wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You remember that song when you were young? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And it goes, ha, 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 ha. 
We sing that song, the kids sing that song, but do they really know? Do you know? The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not anything else. God doesn't say the, the sacrifices of the Lord, the duties of the Lord, the obligations of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord. God is not there thinking, I want you all to be miserable in following me because if when you are, that's when I know that you're a good child. That's how we perhaps might think, you better obey me because I'm your father. That's not God. It's, I want the joy of the Lord to be your strength. What, what makes you persevere? What keeps you going? Why you come to God's word? It's because of the joy of the Lord. That's the end of that road. In verse 11, so the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink. You know, they're eating good food, the best of the best foods, and drinking wine. It's not water, it's actually wine. And send portions and make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. What if I were to say to you after today's message, boy, if you understand this, go home, eat a really great meal, drink some great wine, and make great rejoicing. Well, you... Some people might think, I don't know if that's a real church. Pastor said you should go home and eat a really great steak dinner and drink some really good wine and be really happy. Can you imagine that's what was being said? Nehemiah and the Levites are saying this. Holiness and joy are not contradictory. You have to say that to yourself. A thousand times. Holiness and joy are not contradictory. It is evil to think that when we are pursuing God and pursuing His holiness, that somehow we have to be morose, grievous, grieving, just down in the dumps because God is so holy. No! This is such a solemn, holy occasion of worship. And this is the response is, be joy. Be joyous, filled with it. To be holy and to think that it's following a bunch of miserable religious rules. Who wants that life? Certainly not God for us. Because the day is holy, there was great rejoicing. And why were there's, why was there great rejoicing? Because they understood God's word. That is a, a sequence that you need to understand and hammer down deep into your souls. The more you understand God's word in the fullness of his story from beginning to end and all that God has done to save, it makes you want to pursue holiness and delight in him and glory in him and worship him and follow Him, and obey His commandments. But that leads to joy, not misery. I feel as though we have gotten that so backwards because we have believed the lie that to pursue God is somehow burdensome. And if it ever feels burdensome, you don't, you've forgotten whom you're pursuing and why you're pursuing Him. It's not about the word is default, uh, has defect, or God has some sort of defect. It's our hearts that have defect. 
the people, what are they instructed to do? They're instructed to celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles called Succoth. And they, it's commanded in Deuteronomy 16. The reason they were supposed to do this is that, and they still, actually, if you go to Israel or different Orthodox Jews, they celebrate it still today. So it was all these different people were to go and build basically a shelter out of these wooden shelter out of these branches and you sleep there in it for seven days. It's almost like camping for a Jewish person for one week during a feast. And the reason why they were to do that is because it reminded them of their 40 years of wandering. It was for them to remember how that time was so challenging and yet God provided time and time again. And when they forgot that, when they forgot about God's provision in the wilderness, that's when God's word slowly faded away. It was also during a time of harvest. So it was, it was a celebration. It's a celebration of the past deliverance of God, but also the present deliverance. God provides all the food for them to eat. Everything is provided by God. Everything past, present, and future. So this celebration was meant to say, God's with you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He's going to instead dwell with you. Do you know where we see this idea the most? John chapter 1, verse 14. In John 1, 14, we are told so clearly that God became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt. The word dwell is the word tabernacle. Who is this referring to? It's referring to Jesus. God, Jesus, God the Son, became flesh and tabernacled and decided to be with us and to cover us and to say, this is the indicator, the, the reminder, the forever sucketh, you know, the tabernacle that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what they're celebrating here is ultimately fulfilled and the one who promises, who is the fulfillment of the fact that they, he will never leave. He will never leave you. We respond then in light of that truth by obedience. God's word then, if we're reading it in light of that truth, it is never a burden. It doesn't mean that we, we don't war against our flesh that says, I'm still distracted. But you're never trying to figure out, well, is the Bible worth it? If someone says to you, hey, are you reading? What's your quiet time been like? What, what's your times of devotion been like? Your first instinct shouldn't be, oh, how dare you ask me that? Are you trying to be legalistic towards me? You see, that type of thinking automatically says, I think that reading the Bible is some sort of obligation. Rather, it's all of us saying we need each other to remind each other of why we're reading this Bible. What good is it for our souls that it is the book of life for us? And when we it sinks deep into our souls, then you know what? Setting up chairs on Sunday isn't that big of a deal. Volunteering in the nursery. I was um, talking to Sua. This morning, she was saying, oh, I'm volunteering in the nursery. And I said, wait a second, I feel like you've been doing it so much. And she said, there aren't that many people interested in volunteering in the nursery anymore. 
And it's now I think it's only the women who don't have kids anymore <laughs> volunteering in the nursery. Maybe it's all the moms who have young kids are like, I don't want to be near babies anymore because I have enough of my own. So it, but I was listening to the number of people who are on that list. And it's like four people. And you know, because of that, they're missing worship on a regular basis to help out with those children. And it's not that she didn't say to me that she's not saying, Hey, can you do me a favor and plug this into your sermon? And it's, it's, um, I, I think I wonder the idea of volunteering for ministry, for anything, for missions, for caring for the sick, for making a meal for somebody, for going across the street and sharing the gospel with somebody. The reason why it's burdensome is not because in and of itself is a burden, and it always is, but it's, that's not ultimately why we don't do it. It's because we've forgotten. We really have. We've forgotten what we've been saved from. Thank you, Lord, that I was not too great of a burden that you decided I'm not coming anymore to this world. That the word did not become flesh and dwelt amongst us because it was too much of a burden. I hope instead, because of our delight in God, the regular things of faith actually become something that we enjoy doing. Let me close with this. A couple of things. Two, uh, two more illustrations, and then I'll close. I remember my friends, um, when I was a, a single in seminary, and um, two of my friends got married while they were in seminary. And afterward, I was talking to him, and I was saying, so tell me what's the difference between marriage and being a single person? And he said, he said this. He said, the other day, we got up at midnight, and we... Yeah, we were taking a nap. We got up at midnight and we're both hungry and we decided to make some noodles together and we ate them. And it was so much fun. And I thought, wait a second, that's the, that's what you're going to tell me is what is the difference. And his point was that in the mundane of, and the ordinary things of life, when you can experience joy in that, then you really understand the depth of that relationship. You understand that how significant, how much love there is. It's in the ordinary when you experience so much joy in the ordinary. When you pursue not the extraordinary, I need to go on this tropical vacation to finally feel relieved. That's not what life is about. It's in the ordinary. Can you experience joy in that? The second illustration is this. I was uh, dog-sitting my friend's Labrador. This is a while ago, a long time ago. For a weekend, our family was. He was about two years old. And if you know anything about Labrador retrievers, they very young puppies. They are uh, a handful. He was eating everything in our house, everything. And so I figured, okay, he gave me one of those sticks with the tennis ball at the end. Like I took him to a big parking lot, like a really big one. I and I took that stick and I started throwing that ball as far as I could. So I figured I'm gonna. I'm going to wear him down. He's going to come home. He's going to be exhausted. And then I can have some peace. Two hours later, after my arm is like dead, he's still coming with the ball. And I walked home dejected while he's sauntering along back and still comes back and tears up everything. But you know, this dog, I mean, in a dog, right? So much joy over a tennis ball. I, I just think of that and I think, the mundane, the ordinary, 
God's word is mundane and ordinary. I, I know you shouldn't say that about God's word. I mean the reading of it. And we often think, I need to go to a revival meeting, I need to go to a retreat, I need a great speaker to come and to blow me away. No. You need this. You need to read it every day. You need to read it when it's t- when you're tired, when you're busy, when life is full, and you need to allow it to cut you to the heart. And it will. But you need to take the time to see it in the ordinary. And in that, the promise is the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Do not forget this. May it change you. May it transform you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that apart from it, we could do nothing. I thank you that you gave it to us to love, to delight in. Oh Lord, I pray that every man, woman, student, child in this church would be so filled with your word, not because they go to it excitedly, how many times we will go to it um, tired, maybe barely able to open our eyes, maybe distracted. But Lord, we, we trust in your promises that when we come to it humbly, you will cut us to the heart and you will bring us joy. I pray that we would be a people of your word. And pray, Father, that that word that promises us that you will dwell with us forever, we know that it's found through Jesus. He tabernacled with us. And he gave us his own life so that we might have life forever with you. May this time be that time of reflection and reality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.